You're listening to a breakout session, recorded live at Davis Tent UK 2019. In this episode, we'll be hearing from singer-songwriter and worship leader, Jason Upton. I want to, like, mess around a little bit on the idea of worship and the art of play, and just sort of play around with it a little bit and um, see where we go. Um, And I'm going to use my notes just to keep it a little bit tight so we have the opportunity for dialogue because that's important as well. Um, So we just ask Jesus, thank you, Jesus, that you're here with us. Thank you that you never leave us. Thank you that you are beyond our wildest imagination. Thank you that you are the God who says I am who I am and I will be who I will be. Thank you for the spontaneity of that living relationship. That we're always sort of catching up to what you're up to. We want to become skilled followers of you, Jesus. Unafraid. Courageous. Playful. Amen. Second Samuel, turn your Bible, Second Samuel. I'm going to read it from the message. Chapter 6, verse 12 through 16. I'm going to read it from the message because honestly, I've read most of the translations and I actually think that Eugene Peterson actually brings in some ideas that into his sort of iteration of this that is, is beautiful. But it says, um, verse 12 of Second Samuel 6, says it was reported to King David that God had prospered Obed-Edom and his entire household because of the chest of God. So David thought, quote, I'll get that blessing for myself, right? And went and he brought up the chest of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, celebrating extravagantly all the way with frequent sacrifices of choice bulls. David ceremonially dressed in priest's linen. He danced with great abandon before God, right? And uh, the whole country was with him as he accompanied the chest of God with shouts and trumpet blasts. But as the chest of God came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, happened to be looking out a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before God, her heart filled with scorn. Interesting passage, isn't it? Thinking on the way over here, Sir, Sir John Kirk, a 19th century British naturalist, once said that, If he had it his way, there'd always be a child, a little child positioned in the heart of London. Perhaps in the precincts of Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's Cathedral. Isn't that something? And no one would be allowed to contest a seat in Parliament or become a candidate for public office until he or she had spent a day with that child and passed an examination by the child's novel methods of thought, feeling, and expression. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Can I say that again to you? I mean, this is you guys, right? Sir John Kirk, a 19th century British naturalist, once said that if he had it his way, there would always be a little child positioned in the heart of London, perhaps in the precincts of Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's Cathedral, and no one would be allowed to contest a seat in Parliament or become a candidate for public office until he or she had spent a day with that child and passed an examination by the child's novel methods of thought, feeling, and expression. The story of David, and I mean the whole story, not just what we're reading here, is not the first time in human history where God places a child at the center of our existence and says what? Says, look and see 
and let me surprise you with what actually pleases me. It's not a stretch of the imagination at all to say that when God wants to save humanity throughout history, there's a sweet refrain to it. To us, a child is born. I remember um, for myself, one of the first times I shared it last night, I'll share it again. One of the first times this happened, my son who's with me here, Samuel, he, uh, Samuel, are you here? He was here. Maybe he's not. Believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. He was here. <laughs> he probably likes to play with me more than uh, listen to me talk. So anyway, anyway, but Samuel was three or four, I remember, and he, uh, and I had this, I said it last night there, I had this Trinity rack, because I thought every worship leader needs a Trinity rack. You know what I mean? That was just awesome. Korg made a Trinity rack in the 90s, and in uh, traveling, you know, it would shake all the time, and so I, it would, the, the screws would come loose, and I remember I was, uh, I was, I was fixing the Trinity rack, and, 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 and Samuel was three or four, so he kept saying, I help you, Daddy. I help you, Daddy. And so I was like, well, why don't you hold these screws? And we lived in a house that sort of slanted to the east a bit. And so, which was really awesome because at the end of the night, it was easy. To, it was always easy to find the dogs, balls, and all the toys that rolled, right? Because everything, nothing was ever at the west side. It was always on the east side. And, uh, and so I remember, uh, I remember he was holding these, these screws, and he kept saying, I help you, Daddy. I help you, Daddy. And I was working on this rolling rack that I also had. And, uh, and he's behind me, and all of a sudden his voice gets louder and louder until I hear this pounding. I help you, daddy. I help you, daddy. And I turn around, and he's jumping up and down on top of my Trinity rack, and, and, and I hear the screws all going to the east, you know what I mean? And they're just rolling. And, and, uh, and of course, internally, I'm thinking to myself, this is not helping me, you know? But he was so cute, you know. <laughs> He's amazing. And the next day I was on a, a plane and I'm sitting on the tarmac just waiting to take off. And the Holy Spirit brought me back to that moment with Samuel and me just looking into his eyes, him really not helping me but wanting to so badly, right? And I'm brought back to that and I'm on this plane ready to take off and, and I hear the voice of the Spirit just say, Jason, you know you don't help me, right? And I'm sitting there looking out. You know you don't help me, right? And then, and then I remember it was like, it was like the voice that I heard, I was trying to think of how the voice sounded because it's been very rarely that I've felt like that sense, right? But the, the voice that I heard, it was so clear, it was so gentle, it was so kind. And, and, and the only way I can say it in words, at least as of right now, is it had the sound of a smile. It was, it was playful. I, even when I say the story, I always try to have a smile because that's what it sounded like. You know you don't help me, right? It, was like, it wasn't like he was being mean to me. He was just kind of kidding, like a dad would with his child, just joking with, hey, you know you don't help me, right? And then he said these amazing words to me. He said, God said, God said, but that's not what I love about you. What I love about you, Jason, is exactly what you love about Samuel. What I love about you is that you want to. And I honestly think through the years, that's the difference between being a falsely religious people and being the sons and daughters of a living God. And I say falsely religious because religion is a good thing. Tradition is a good thing, right? So I'm not saying that religion is all bad or tradition's all bad. But to be falsely religious, I think oftentimes we, we have, uh, let me say it this way, to be a child of God, right, it's much more like that. You have this incredible desire to help God, but you don't necessarily know if you're really helping God at all. In fact, you don't even, you know, 
you almost don't even care if you're helping, you just want to. And I think falsely religious people, we get to a place where we absolutely think we're helping God, but we've maybe long since lost that beautiful, playful desire or longing or wanting to help God. Or to do things with God just because we want to be with God, right? The sound of God's voice, it was playful. Around that same time, I, I wrote this, uh, this poem that actually, back in the day, I wasn't playful enough even in my worship or my understanding of worship to just let a poem be a poem because you had to, if it was going to be worship, it had to be music, right? And I remember I had this poem that came to me, and it, was, and it said, everything you do, I want to do with you because doing things with you makes me happy. And everything you say, I want to say it too because even when I say it wrong, we just start laughing. I remember I wrote that because our kids, when they were young, they'd be in the back seat of the car and they'd be saying all the words wrong, right? And the books on parenting tell you that you're supposed to respond to a child saying a word wrong by saying it right, right? And you're supposed to say it back to them the right way. But we never did that. We always said it back to them the wrong way. And the way that they said it was the way that we all said it. <laughs> Until maybe one of their teachers told them that they needed to say it differently. And then we we're all like, oh man, we got to say it right now. But it was almost like a passage of time. You know, there's like a, it's like a moment in your parenting, isn't it, for those of you that are parents, where all of a sudden you have to start saying the words the right way, right? And you're kind of sad because you grieve that loss of that, that playful interaction with your children of saying it the wrong way. And I thought, it's got to be that way with, with God. There's another little, little, little thing in this is that God was like, you know, with all your theology and all of your stuff that you learn all this time, Jason, you're jumping up and down on my Trinity all the time. You know what I mean? That's a funny idea, isn't it? You really think you're helping me, right? But you don't help me. What I love about you is that you want to, that you desire to. Everything you do, I want to do with you because doing things with you makes me happy. And everything you say, I want to say it too, because even when I say it wrong, we just start laughing. Merciful Father, I'm learning to trust you love me the way that I am. And my simple desire to help you means more to you than whether I really can. And my simple desire to help you means more to you than whether I really can. That's the language of playfulness. It's the language of I'm unaware of whether I'm actually helping you, but I sure want to kind of language. It's the language of I don't know what I'm doing right now, but I'm sure having a lot of fun doing it with you. That's the kind of language it is. So what is playfulness? I learned some really important things. There's a, there's a little book that all, all you parents and any of you that aren't parents, you should probably get this. If you've ever been parented, you should probably listen to this Brené Brown podcast book. It's not even a, it's a book, but it's actually not in written form. It's only in podcast form where she talks to you. It's the strangest book. You can only get it where she talks to you. It's amazing. I don't know why they did it this way, but it's amazing. And so you, you get this book, this audio book, but it only comes in audio book. It's not in written form. I wish it was in written form, but it's not. So she just talks to you the whole time, and it's called The Gifts of Imperfect Parenting. Isn't that a title? The Gifts of Imperfect Parenting. In the middle of it, she says that she was researching Stuart's, Stuart Brown's research on violence, and she made the, this correlation. He made this correlation between incarcerated violent offenders. So everybody that was a violent f offender in prison, incarcerated, had this one thing in common, and that was that they, they all had lack of play in their childhood. So Brené Brown, of course, like all of us parents would probably do, she decides immediately that she's going to organize playtimes for all of her children <laughs> to make sure that none of her children become violent offenders. So they say, she says, so tell me, uh, tell me your like, favorite play game. And one of the children, their eldest child, was like, well, I love Candyland. So she was like, I hate Candyland. <laughs> but we were going to play Candyland. My husband hates Candyland. But we were going to play Candyland 
every day to make sure that our children didn't become violent offenders. So they start playing Candyland every day as a family to make sure that their children don't become violent offenders until they almost all became violent offenders playing Candyland. You know what I mean? And then they got so frustrated. <laughs> and later on, she realizes that, uh, that the properties of play have very little to do with organizing playtime. That the properties of play have a lot more to do with the art of wasting time. Play is time. If you're writing down, you, you might want to write this. Play is time spent without purpose. Play, these are some of my words on it. Play is what is happening the moment when you lose sense of yourself. Play is what's happening in the moment when we lose sense of ourselves. Play is what we're doing. How about this one? Play is what you're doing when you've lost total track of time while doing it. I mean, that's one thing to ask yourself. When's the last time you've been in a worship service, right? And you've completely lost track of time. Well, I have a few times here, right? You've totally lost track of time while doing it, right? Playtime is when you get together with that great friend and you completely lose track of time because you're having such a good time just having a dialogue. Playtime is that dialogue that leads to this beautiful conversation in this incredible worship experience where you experience God in a new and a fresh way just because you are willing to waste three hours at some cafe just having a conversation. Play is when something's so fun that we don't want it to end. And I think it's also important not to just realize that God wants us to learn how to play. We gotta start asking ourselves an incredibly difficult question and that is, do we let God play? Because this God that we worship says, I am who I am and I will be who I will be. And spontaneity and play in that is the reality of that living relationship. That God, he can't be locked in our little concepts. That maybe one of the most narcissistic things that we can do as a worshiping community is say where God can dwell. Say where God is. Right? One of the most narcissistic things that we can do is not by receiving from God or receiving as children or learning that we're the sons and daughters of God. One of the most narcissistic things we can do is sing songs all about God but we've shaped and formed God into our own image. It's like what Blaise Pascal says, God made man in his image and then man returns the favor. So we only use songs about God, but this God looks just like us and often looks just like us outside of the realm of play and spontaneity and being what God has really intended and called us to be. God is, says, I am who I am and I will be who I will be. There's a, there's a bit of the art of play just in entering into the relationship with God, right? So let's just give a, 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 just a short brief passage here on, uh, on the ark protocols. The Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines in this passage here 30 years earlier. And David's now king and wants to establish the Ark as God's rule in Jerusalem. And for David, I love this part, for David, our lives did not merely depend on kings and queens and rulers and authorities or his throne. Our lives truly depended on the presence of God. And that's what he was trying to get through to the people. I want to establish God's presence here. I want to establish God's presence here. Not just my rule, but God's rule. And our life depends on God's rule, not just my rule. Now that's the best way. There's probably another sermon of some things that are in this passage that we don't need to get into today that may have been his ideas about what would get God to be there, right? But I want to say it the right way. I think his intention over time, his habitual intention was I want God to be the one who rules. And our destiny depends on God's presence, right? And then there is really important protocols, and it's important. When we read this passage about David dancing and Michael getting upset, I think it's important for us to realize there were serious 
protocols around. It's like, why would Michael get so upset at David dancing, right? When we're out there dancing in the field because we've, we've created a form that that's acceptable. It's important to realize that there were strict rules regarding the ark. Only a priest, right? You had to be dressed in the right kind of gowns. The handling the ark, it was not to be touched by human hands, but carried by Levites using poles inserted through rings attached to the ark. It's important for us to understand that the history of how people were taught to handle the ark was with reverence and awe. It was a holy task. The ark was not the stuff, I like to say it this way, the ark was not the stuff of disco balls and dance parties. You get what I'm saying? But we have Uzzah. Remember, just prior to this, he had just, David had first sent Uzzah to go get the ark, and Uzzah's just trying to do the right thing and trying to steady the ark from what? From falling and getting dirty, right? Which actually, that's a beautiful thought because, you know, if you think about the incarnation of Jesus in the presence, falling to earth, getting in the mud, right? Getting in the dirt, getting dirty, getting into humanity, being born, right? But Uzzah doesn't want it to get dirty, and he's in charge of transferring the ark, but we have to understand with empathy and compassion for him, we have to say, in Uzzah's worldview, he needed to take care of this thing. This was the ark of God's presence, and he didn't want it to fall. And so as he sees the ark starting to stumble because of the, 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 the oxen starting to stumble, he begins to, to, to try to lift up the ark. And, 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 and one of the most difficult statements in all the Bible, so difficult, by the way, that I, I've studied almost everyone on this subject, and nobody even wants to touch it. God smote him and he died. Nobody wants to touch it. So David calls off the trip and the project's abandoned and people go home. And if this was the end of the story, I think it'd be fair for all of us to think that quite possibly church may be, or God's presence, may be the very last place that we're going to learn how to play, Right? If this were the end of the story, Eugene Peterson actually says, quite honestly, maybe every religious institution should have beware of God signs posted everywhere, right? I can't tell you how difficult it is for me to preach with that. <laughs> Just telling you. But it's amazing. It's great. This is here we are. And for us to... <laughs> Can you imagine... It's like, beware of God signs everywhere, you know? And for us to fully appreciate, listen to this, for us to fully appreciate a religion that calls us to live and move and have our being and dance and play, we have to first realize that religion can also be the death of us. Do you get that? Ooze is dead for trying to make sure the ark doesn't tumble, and David seemingly lets the ark take care of itself and throws a dance party while moving it. And frankly, even seems a little undignified, and he's alive, and he's prospered, and he's blessed. Father Adonai says this, he goes, stillness is the canvas against which movement, dance can be, be, become beautiful. That's what I love about the Bible, is it has stories like Uzzah and David. And then we have to kind of all figure figure it out, right? Stillness is the canvas against which movement dance can become beautiful. We can only appreciate the dance against the background of stillness. Were everything in motion or kinetic, we could not know what movement is. As sound is sistered to silence, movement is sistered to stillness. And that's the beauty of the scripture. And that's the beauty of this scripture. I love this. I I literally studied, I, I looked for everyone, anyone, radical, crazy people that would talk to me about why Ooze is dead. Eugene Peterson only gave us one thing. He says, this is how we become Ooze. Listen to this. We enter a church to learn of God, right? To be trained in knowledge and obedience and prayer. And we get what we came for. Truth that centers, words that comfort, Rituals that stabilize, work that has purpose, a community of relationships that strengthen, forgiveness that frees, 
we find God. So listen to this. So we rearrange our circumstances around what now gives us meaning and hope. We take on responsibilities in the wonderful new world of worship and work. We advance in the ranks, and, we, and before we know it, we're all, we're all telling others what to do and how to do it. Isn't that right? Isn't that how we do it? And this is what I love about Eugene Peterson. He says, and this is all good and right. But then we cross a line. And we get bossy and cranky on behalf of God. Have you ever experienced this? We get bossy and cranky on behalf of God. And we begin by finding in God, we begin by finding in God a way to live rightly and well. And then along the way, we take over God's work for him and take charge of making sure others live rightly and well. We get this idea that we're important that we're self-important because we're around the important. And religion is actually a breeding ground for this kind of thing. And not infrequently, these God-managing men and women work themselves into positions of leadership. And over the years, the basics with which they began, the elements of reverence and awe, the spirit of love and faith erode and shrivel, and finally there's nothing left. They're actually dead to God. Does that make sense? I know it's hot. I mean, I'm freaking hot up here. So just hear me. We become dead to God. How do we become Uza? That's the issue. How does that happen? We have a lot of music in the church that has praise in it. Lots of music that has dance in it now. But we actually don't really have that much music that has the expression of incarnation in it. There's very little music or lyric expression where God is allowed to get dirty. You ever notice that? So worship isn't about just us learning how to play. It's also about letting God play even within our expression. This is the powerful thing about David. David lets God take care of God. Like how one guy said it to me one time, David lets God do God, right? Be God. That the, you know, Joseph was buried in, in, in a coffin, and it's the same word that they use for ark, right? So this idea of God being in this ark, of God being this superstitious relic that we all have and we carry around everywhere, right? That God's this superstitious. But I think sometimes we do that with worship. God's in this superstitious experience that we have. And as long as we have that experience, God's here. But we don't allow God to be in the play, Right? It's unbelievable, really. <laughs> Those two kids that were here, they're like, heck, man, we're going over there. That sounds amazing. <laughs> know what this guy's talking about. So then, of course, we have Michael's disdain for David. Listen to this, because Michael would love it if David would just make God their social amenity and their political backer. Have you ever heard of those kind of God worshipers, right? Michael's so comfortable with stately, the proper, the careful, and the dead, but she's so uncomfortable with the reckless, the daring, the careless, the praising, and the alive. So I just want to say this. Maybe you hate dancing. I actually hate dancing. Every time I'm with Tim Jupp, he says, you're going to write some dancing songs. And I'm like, it's going to be a while. <laughs> and one of the reasons I hate dance is because I'm terrible at it. And then every once in a while, I just, woo, I just let go. You know, I'm at home and the music's playing and I'm in the kitchen and I just let go. And I just start to dance and let go of my body. And I just, it all becomes like one, you know what I mean? And you just start to dance and then. And then I open my eyes and my daughter Emma's there laughing at me or my children are <laughs> laughing at me because I'm such a terrible dancer, you know? But, and I want you just to just focus in on this and then we'll be, it's not about 
making dance the new dead expression of a dead God and a dead religion. This is what I want you to hear today. It's not about making dance. Dance isn't play, just like, just like Candyland isn't play. You know the guy, you, you know you know the spirits really broke out when Upton's dancing. Dancing isn't like what I really like to do, and I like to really do that, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm moved by what I do, and so everybody must be moved by what I do. And then we take it a step further, right? And God is saying that everybody must be moved by what I do, when maybe you should have just done what you do and let God do what God does. You get the point. Maybe... Maybe it, dancing isn't the secret. The secret's being alive and letting God be alive. The secret is play and letting God play. The secret is to deepen the I am of God existence, the active God, the active I am within us, the playfulness of worship where we stop dictating where God can land, where God goes, what God is in. A God who says, I am who I am and I will be who I will be. That is a God who speaks to us in a voice that's often radically opposed to our own way of thinking. And just about the time we think we have God pegged as a spontaneous dancer, he shows up still seemingly without movement or worse yet, we find God even enjoying monotony. That is the God of play. Do you feel me? You understand? I mean, it's a little difficult, but this is a great background, right? That's the God of play, guys. That just about the time you think you're dealing with a dead God that you can make in your own image, God shows up dancing. But just about the time you make God the spontaneous dancer, he shows up in stillness. Or even worse yet, monotony. That is not just irritating or frustrating. It's the reality of a living I am who I am and I will be who I will be, God. It's the playfulness of God. And that's why it's best for us to let God be God, right? And we become followers. That's also why it's so important when I say yesterday on the stage is, it's all the activity. Anybody that tries to trap me or tell me that this is the expression and this is when we've worshiped. This is not what worship is to God ever throughout scripture. It always comes back to the heart and it always comes back to the I am within you. What does that mean? Are you active? You guys, if we began to activate every single song we sing on a Sunday morning all over the world, the world would be changed instantaneously. But reality is there's very little activation. There's tons of expression. And what happens with expression is we lock into the expression and then somebody comes and breaks through this cap that we put on expression and we break through it and then all of a sudden all of us go, whoo, boom. And we create another cap, don't we? And now, now you can do that. And then everybody just copies that until... And then God shows up over here and we say, well, God couldn't be showing up over there because God's here. We got him in our coffin. God's saying, no, 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 I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And you need to start getting familiar with that. Right? So even for me, I have to just, that's why I go into the dancing sessions. You know what I mean? Because it's like, oh, God, okay, one of these days. It's going <laughs> to, Tim Jump's right. I'm just going to, woo, he's the God of the dance. It's going to be amazing when that happens. But how about this? Or even yet, he shows up. How about this for the playfulness of God? Even he shows up in the mundane. You've probably heard this, but I have to share another great quote. G.K. Chesterton, he points this monotony of God. Listen to this. Because children have abounding vitality, because they're in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. This is also the playfulness, you see. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt monotony. 
It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old. And our father is younger than we. Meaning what? Meaning maybe the hymnal hasn't grown old. Maybe it's not the old song that's grown old. Maybe the liturgy hasn't grown old. Maybe we grew old. God is young. I'm going to say that again, right? Maybe it's not the hymnal that grows old. Maybe it's not the old song that grows old. Maybe the liturgy didn't grow old. Maybe we grew old. And God is young. It's interesting that they want to give a name for God in the Old Testament, and they decide on Ruach, which is connected to this Jesus saying, the wind blows wherever it wishes, and no one knows where it's coming from, and no one knows where it's going to, so everyone who's born of the Spirit, right? But it's also a real in, a good indication of what it's like to try to lock God in, isn't it? Feels like the wind would love you to dance. To let you surf its undulations and steal you away from the weight of your body. Wouldn't that be awesome? One day for me, right? Casting you hither and thither like the shimmer of dust. Such wind is wild with dream. So God, let me, let me learn how to play. Let me learn what it means to play. And locking God into like another boring, dead, religious, right? When we do that, we're not learning what God's really like. Do you understand? We're just locking him into a new form. So let's just take some time. Just to dialogue on that, why don't you just, uh, if you have questions for me on that, why don't you just go for it. I think, I think one of the things is like church is the one place, like everywhere else you go in the world, right? Education. I mean, Rachel's taking me to classes, you know, workout classes. My wife, you know, it's like, you go to these workout classes and they yell at you and scream at you and want you to do better. And they're, they're always pushing you and trying to, you know, and if. And so it seems to me that church is the one place where we expect to just come and stay the same. So it's sort of like we expect to come and get the God that we expect. And we expect to, you know, to, to, to stay the same and. And I feel like the more, the more you can enter into spaces that make you uncomfortable. If you're uncomfortable with liturgy, go get in that liturgy until you find God in it. If you're uncomfortable with the space of uh, you, don't, you don't like things that are lots of mundane and doing it again and again, maybe what you need in your life is just a little mundane doing it again and again until doing it again and again becomes alive to you, Right? If you're a church that all you do is just do it again and again and again and again and again, and now it's dead to you, maybe you need to dance a little, right? Waste time. Get lost. Ask people, hey, when's the last time you've lost track of time being with God? Right? Push against, you know, we, we're just so focused on doing it, right? Now, now I... As a leader in what I do, I, my goal as I grow is to become more and more what, God, what has God created me to be, but never to think that I'm the end all of creation or worship. And I think a lot of times, God's, we, we, we just, we really do think that we're the end all of things and we lock in. I hear this all the time now. I mean, worship, it's like, whoo, this is worship. Anybody that says this is worship, just look out for them. This is worship, the way I worship. That's worship. Give me a break. They don't even know what they're talking about. 
They're just locking something in and they're wanting to control. Somebody that comes to me and says, God's like the wind. I found him at a, out in the woods the other day. I just never know where he's coming from or where he's going. Man, that's the kind of person I want to talk to. That's the person with wisdom. That's what, you want to have a worship community, a robust worship community? Demand activity, not simply expression. And the minute you begin to get active worshipers among you, you can read a poem, you can read a prayer, you can sit in silence. You can throw a dance party. Right? Am I preaching hard enough against that? Just trying to. We think we know, we think Candyland is how we're going to get us playing. You get the point? But it's actually these other elements of letting God be God, letting the moment be the moment, letting God let, I think, I think, right? What is that? Uh, there is no way that this even makes half sense because I can't even like think with, with that going on. But I'm just trying to keep reiterating some things. What, is, what does Donahue say? O'Donohue says, it feels as if the wind would love you to dance. So I'm reading O'Donohue and I have to go, I hate dancing. But I'm receiving that moment from the poet, right? It feels as if the wind would love you to dance, Right? He says this, he goes, one of the most lovely earthly movements in creation is how a bird plays among the high geographies of wind force, spring sliding and balancing on its invisible hills and waves. Listen to this. Before there was ever music and rhythm, right? How did we get music and rhythm? O'Donoghue says by watching the birds with the wind. That's powerful. I want to tap into that kind of listening that kind of vision, that kind of insight. Before ever the human mind became fascinated with, with rhythm, with structure, meaning, and movement, the birds knew how to enjoy and play within the temporary landscapes of the wind. So before we think, woo, now that's worship. Jesus, I feel like often, that's what, the way Jason Upton does his worship, let's just throw me in the, in the mix, right? And Jesus is like, that bird's worship. Watch that. I think, I think sometimes just making sure that we're, we're not too fascinated with our own way of doing it and, 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 and scared to death to really follow this Jesus that it's sometimes difficult to find where are you. It's going to take discipline. So you want to have a playful church, you're going to have to have a disciplined church. A church that isn't afraid to be disciplined. And one of the greatest ways to discipline the church is to get them to learn how to follow Jesus. And one of the real practical ways that we learn how to follow Jesus was an 87-year-old woman told us one time, let your youngest child take your family for a walk, and then you'll know how to follow Jesus. And we let our two-year-old child take our family for a walk. It was a tough walk. Because a two-year-old child goes this way and that way and backwards and forwards, and you're trying to get there, and they're coming back here. And you feel like you're getting nowhere. And it's probably true. Geographically, you're getting nowhere. But you're going to learn how to follow, she told us. Let your youngest child take you for a walk and you'll learn what it's like to follow Jesus. Any other questions? You have a question? Well, like one of the things that I, I think happens within worship is that Every time I'm listening to a worship song and I'm in worshiping, for instance, the way I am is I'm constantly, I mean, I have a few other things because I'm a songwriter, so I'm, I, I'm thinking, how did they write that and what did they mean? And that's the way my mind works too. And words matter to me because words become flesh and dwell among us. So what we sing really does matter. Words really do matter. Actually, in a culture, especially in America, where words seem to, to less and less matter, words do matter. And what we sing and what we declare, it matters. Um, so I'm thinking that. Do I want this activated to me? Because it will be activated to me because life is sacramental. And what I receive, I am going to become. 
And so the words, this is why marriage in the Catholic Church is sacramental. Why? Because the activity of it all, that two people come together and they make a public declaration that they will participate in the ongoing creation of the other. And what you declare over each other, you are becoming. And then we wonder why the marriage is failing. And it's often because we're just not standing and gazing at one another and telling each other what we see. We're not growing in that. We're not realizing that we are actually responsible for how the other person becomes. We're not the creator of the other person, but we become a participant participant in God creating the other. So activating what we hear is what we become. When you receive pardon, you pardon. When you receive broken bread and poured out wine, we become the broken bread and poured out wine that we receive. So everything is about we're, we're activating. And so that's one thing. Am I wanting to receive what I'm, what I'm hearing? Right? And that's going to, through faith, become alive in me. So I'm asking that. The second thing is I'm saying, how can I activate what it is that I'm singing? Because this is the struggle that I have with a lot of worship is that God is this God that's young, right? He's like the child who we tell him all these things. We're going to give you all the glory. We're going to do it. You know, we're always telling him. And God is like a little kid whose dad says, I'm going to take you to the ballpark on Saturday and then doesn't. And the child's up at five ready to go. And then they, oh, I can't. The disappointment, right? God is like the one that we all keep giving vows to, and somehow he's so young, he keeps coming back every time we say, hey, we're going to the ballpark on Saturday. Hey, I'm going to live for you on Monday. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live for you. We keep singing it, don't we? I'm going to live for you. But you think, God, it's not about I'm going to live for you. It's about the experience of, oh, they're going to live for me. I want to know you, Lord. Like I know a friend. Really? You want to be my friend? You see what I'm saying? So, so I'm always saying, how am I going to activate this expression? And then also, is this expression active in me? If you, I'm just, it's not easy because we've been trained by the lie that the expression is what matters. But I'm telling you guys, the next move, and it's coming. I believe that there's a win coming that we've never experienced before. Because I believe God. And we got to grow up for it. I don't think it's going to be play and games in the sense of like Candyland. I think it's the real deal. The real kind of like where God is expecting for us to enter in. Stop with the entertainment, the detaining from entry. And enter into what it means to be active participants in the kingdom of God. Right? And so what I say is. Gosh, if I have a band member with me and I was here, and in the past, if you've been watching me very long, I'd do it. If I had a band member with me and they're with me and they're a worshiper, their lives are worship. And they got a song. I don't tell them what to sing. I hand them over the platform and I say, sing the activity of your lives. Bring the activity of your worship to your expression. Even if that expression is rejected by people, man, the precious stone of God was acceptable only to God, but rejected by the builders. I think sometimes we think we're builders. We're all builders and we know how to build. No, God knows how to build. So if active, why? God is not going to build with some empty expression. God's going to build with a cornerstone activity of worship. You, you want to you you know that you know that you know? Start looking at the activity of people's lives, not merely the expression. And then you say, man, we got some worshipers up in here. We don't got worshipers up in here just because they're singing the song. We got worshipers up in here because they're living it. Man, if people, if we start living what we're singing... Number one, we may start shutting our mouths when we're singing songs we don't even intend to live. But then what else happens? What else happens is, man, you can go anywhere with those kind of worshipers. You can go anywhere. You'll change the world with that. Does that make sense? That's kind of, that's kind of the, I could go on and on, but yeah. that's the idea, right? Yeah, oh, I thought that was Phil. <laughs> Thank God. He's behind you. He's the timekeeper. That's what I said. So my question kind of relates to what you're saying. 
you know, to be honest, the presence of the Father and the Son are here through the gifts of the Spirit. And to be honest, I never, ever, I'm, I'm, I love it because the whole world thinks that I travel around with Gideon, but, or, or Gabriel or something, you know what I mean? But, but. Michael the Archangel's right here, man. Be careful what you say about me, you know what I mean? No, uh, to be honest, other people thought that that was an angel. I actually doubted that it was an angel, but after reading Billy Graham's book on angels, I said, why would I not believe that it's an angel? A little child saw an angel. Why wouldn't angels be active if, the, if we believe that there's this great cloud of witnesses that are here? But I wrote what I had to write on it, and there was a few people that desired fame and publicity and they decided to put that out. And in some ways, it's made it a headache because the gift of that moment was that children were introduced for the very first time. I was singing with orphans when that happened. And kids, we sang every vineyard song we could that had the father heart on it. And they didn't attach to it at all because they never had any father like that. So they couldn't relate to God as father. This is often what will happen if you lead worship in places like South America where there's a lack of fathers. There's an orphan spirit. Wherever there's an orphan spirit, you can feel it a little bit when you go up to Ireland. You, you, wherever there's an absence of the father, it's very difficult to sing about this father who loves you and knows you. But you try to get them to say Abba and it's very diff difficult. You get them to praise Jesus, it's easy, right? And so... That was what was amazing is we went for three and a half hours that night in spontaneous song. And then nobody moved. They were laying on the ground being healed of their fatherlessness and their orphan spirit. And that's the power of that moment. It doesn't surprise me that there would be angels there. But, and I hate to say it, but I think it, it may not have been blown out of a proportion. But I don't think that we have to like talk about that. I hope angels are with me all the time. And I, I actually kind of believe that it probably is the case. Um, but but I, I would never be like, hey, can you put a mic on for my buddy Gabriel? You know what I mean? It's like, that's, that's not what I meant. My reason for putting that record out, because if you remember at the time, I only had Jacob's Dream and Dying Star and Faith out. My reason for and they were very contemplative. I mean, that was dance, if you will, for me at the moment. All of a sudden, it's like, let's put out, let's put out a full spontaneous record of me singing. Ah, da, da, da. <laughs> that was risky, seriously. <laughs> I, I would never probably do it now at 45, but I'm sure glad I did it then. And the idea that I wrote on the inlet of that was more, it was a case of why wouldn't I believe in this? Why wouldn't I believe the 13-year-old little boy that came up and said, I saw an angel standing 15 feet behind you. And then all of a sudden, a, a sound engineer who can hear the room says, there's somebody singing 15 feet behind you. And it was exactly the same without a correlation or conversation. That was powerful to me. Powerful enough to say, but I want it to be expressed in a way of, because that was in the time where, guys, there was no Bethel worship. There was none of what we have today. It was, you didn't even have spontaneous worship. When you did spontaneous worship, people were like, where's the song, man? <laughs> now if you don't do spontaneous worship, you're not worshiping, I guess. You know what I mean? It's like, you get the point. It's like, and, that, and that's, the, that's part of the playfulness of God too, but it's also letting God play is also always putting yourself in a position where you don't create a certainty out of it. And that's why I didn't like what the certain person that went on YouTube and made that a big story, who was a friend of mine, and I told him I didn't like it. Because that, we don't have to do that. I don't have to tell the world that I sing with angels to be important. It, it kind of bothers me, and I let them know. So I'm not just saying that to you. But it kind of bothers me, because it makes it, it, it'll make some people not believe and the power of angels, just like the prophetic is so important, guys. And that's why it's important for us to carry it well. Because the church can't survive without the prophetic. So stop with the garbage. Don't think that just everything that comes to your mind is prophetic. Right? So the, 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 and, all, and on and on, you know. But angels do exist. It is power. 
But the most important thing is the Spirit of the Father and the Son are here through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now that's pretty amazing. And so, of course, angels are here and, and a whole host. So does that make sense? I hope that makes that, that, is it? Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, one more time. Yep, yep, go ahead. Does anybody have that sheet on the values of uh, the worship leaders at David Sent? Do you have that on you, the pocket? Somebody gave me this pocket sheet of the values of worship leaders. Do you guys have it? It's a little sheet on what you expect from your worship leaders on the stage. If, if, if they could make that available to her, you should read that. It's very powerful. Uh, because one of the chief values is obedience to God and finding his heart in everything, or something like that, right? And that's a, those kind of values will change worship. If uh, Obedience to God, my experience with obedience to God is that that does not always make for, you know, crowd approval. But, but crowd disapproval doesn't mean that you're being obedient to God either. Do you hear the play in that? So just going to make, it's like just going to make people angry at you or being angry doesn't make you a prophet, right? <laughs> but that sure would be easy, wouldn't it? Just to, I've come to make you terrified. <laughs> Any other questions? Or, yeah. Without, with involving God in it? Yeah. Well, the, the, the be let me just say this. It was said by an older man who said, the best, the, the, the best correction of the bad is the practice of the better. So that's the way... That's the best way to say that. But that's not said by me. That's an old man that said that. So you exalt God by having the courage to be who you are and be alive in it. And, uh, and I think sometimes the greatest corrections that come, come even through stories with your own vulnerability of your own existence and trying to follow God, Right? When you try to correct from that other side, right, that deductive side instead of that inductive place, when you try to correct on this way, I think often we get it wrong. We do, we do, we do a much better job when we see internally where we are and then through our own testimony, our own expression, right, of, of, of worshiping and, and giving God the glory right through that. I think that's the best. But going back, you know, the old man saying, the, the, the best correction of the bad is the practice of the better. I think that's true. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, thank you for worshipers. Thank you for playfulness. Thank, thankful for the Bible being so playful that we, at David's tent, we're not, we're not so much about one particular form but we're about following your heart and being after your heart and being real, true worshipers in spirit and truth. And so God, may the expressions expand. May activity grow. 
May the worship, may the active worshiping community grow throughout the earth. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Do make sure you subscribe. And if you'd like more information on how to get involved with David's Tents, please visit www.davidstents.net.